And adults, if you would open your Bibles up to Jude, the book of Jude, we'll stop over there briefly before we go too far into today's message. We are in a series called Beyond Belief, where we are looking at Christian apologetics, evidences for the faith. And if you've been here with us during this past month, you'll hopefully have had 1 Peter 3.15 printed out and somewhere in your house, located somewhere so that you can be memorizing it. We're going to do that here in just a moment. I just want to give you a quick reminder of where we've been with this series so far. We started out with a discussion of truth. What is truth? And looking at what God, the existence of a God, does to something like the nature of truth. And what truth looks like if there is no God in this cosmos. We talked about how meaning and purpose for existence are tied, integrally tied, to whether or not there is a God and there is that truth that accompanies him. We talked then about why something rather than nothing at all. We looked at our cosmos and we said, isn't it strange that such a thing should emerge? Why would this incredible something be here rather than just nothingness? And then again, we talked about how meaning is intrinsically tied to the idea of this universe if there is a God. But if there is no God, then there is no meaning. Last week as we got together, we talked about God revealed in nature And we particularly discussed origins, different theories of origins, and how every single one of the theories points dramatically to the existence of God, such that we're really left with no alternative than to say, what is the something that caused this universe, and have to consider God as an option. This week, we're going to be discussing God revealed in nature again. This is going to be uh, probably the most scientific, intensive week that we're going to have here. So hopefully, you all had your coffee and are ready to go. Scientific notation required today. You're going to have to know exponents in order for this to make sense. Well, I'll explain it again. I know it's been a long time since high school. Let's quickly do our uh, memory verse, and then we'll get rolling, okay? Ready? All right. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the in you, yet with, oh, you guys did better than first service today. Nice job. Nice job. New memory verse next month. Okay, so uh, beginning next week, we're going to be starting another one. Man, every month? Yeah. (laughs) I want to talk about skeptics before we get rolling today, and I just, I want to turn our minds back to the kind of the ministry aspects of what we're doing with apologetics. I, I remember when I first began investigating Uh, the truth claims of the scripture when tied to ministry. And I remember being overwhelmed by a lot of the scientific evidences I'm going to be trotting out for you guys today. And I remember thinking to myself, this is it. I've got it. There is no way an atheist can reject what I'm about to tell them. I've got this locked down. I've I've got it tight. As soon as I marshal these evidences and trot them out, surely every non-believer will be persuaded. I found much to my sorrow that I was wrong. It's not that the evidences aren't powerful. There have been so many times where I've been in discussion with non-believers and I've kind of backed them into an ideological corner, but they don't concede and they don't change their mind. Why is that the case? Because human beings are a lot less objective than we like to pretend we are. just want to briefly recount some of the instances I've had over the years. There was one instance where I was talking to a guy and we got to the point where he just he had nothing else to go on. And he said to me this, he said, I know you're wrong, I just don't know how you're wrong yet. Yet. I had a high school student who was fairly bright, and he and I were talking, he was a big fan of Richard Dawkins, an adamant atheist. And he said, well, 
the problem is, is this is not fair. You've gone to college and I haven't gone to college yet. As soon as I go to college for a few years, I'll know why I don't believe. And so basically it's, I already have my mind made up. I just have to find the facts that fit with what I already believe. There was one instance where I preached a, a sermon, preached the, uh, the eulogy for one of my former students. And, uh, and uh, a woman was there and she was, I, you know, I present the gospel message as part of funeral services. And in the aftermath of it, she came up to me and she's like, I want to know if what you're saying is true. Can we get together and talk? And so we set up a time where the church secretary was there so that, you know, I could have this conversation with her. And uh, in the course of the conversation, it became very clear very quickly that she'd never heard any evidences for Christianity. And she was just stunned, shell-shocked. And by the time we hit the end of the meeting, she was shaken. I mean, quite literally, like she was frazzled. You could just see it in her because she's going, could this be true? And so she set another time for us to meet, and we got back together. And when we got to back together, she had a prepared statement. And she said to me, okay, I've got it here now. I'm ready, I'm ready to respond. And I said, okay. So she started in, and I said, well, let's stop each point, and we can kind of address each point as we go. No, 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 no. I'm going to read the whole thing. Okay. So I just started taking notes as she went. And she got to the end of her litany, and I said, okay, let's address some of these things because you've made some mistakes on what you're saying here. I just want to, she says, no, 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 no. I've already got it clear in my mind. That's all I needed. And then she gets up and literally runs out of the room. She was gone. I never saw her again. But this is indicative of the mindset that many people have. Now, there's a tendency in us as believers when we encounter something like that to be like, mm, skeptics fit this Roman one par- Romans 1 paradigm. And I'm looking at them like, you just, you've got a hard heart. You know, as Peter, or as Peter, as Stephen described it, remember Stephen making a defense of his life. He's talking to these, these people who are about to stone him to death. And he says, you stiff-necked people, stiff-necked people. You know what that means? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a reference to beasts of burden, animals like, like mules or donkeys or oxen. And if you've seen people plowing with an animal like that, there are some animals that you, you saw on the reins to get them to turn. And even though it's hurting them to resist, they just tighten down their neck and they refuse. And Stephen's like, that's what you are. You're stiff-necked people. You're, you're resisting the will and the design and the desire of God. There's a tendency for us to go, I'm writing you off, right? I'm not casting my pearls before swine, that, which is a great way to discuss this with people. You're a swine, you pig. You get no more of my pearls. But there is a, there's a biblical precedent for that where you literally just write people off to some degree and you go, I'm not going to waste time with this anymore. Let me just say, we should be like God is and be long-suffering in reaching that point. Jude, chapter 1, verse 22. Here's what you need to know. Skeptics matter to God. God cares about people with doubts. If you're here today and you doubt the existence of God, you're in a great place. I'm glad you're here. Some of the most profound Christians I have ever known were people who started out hating God and hating the idea of God. But eventually something softened, something broke in them. Look at Jude chapter 1, verse 22. And have mercy on some who are doubting. The term mercy, when you hear it, think of the word pity. Have pity on those who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Skeptics matter to God. Doubters matter to God, and they should matter to us as well. We are on a rescue mission, and it requires pity, and it requires boldness, and it requires shrewdness. We've got to even be careful that we don't put ourselves in a condition where we're being tainted by the ministry we're trying to perform. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer.
and then we'll get rolling. Master, we desire to be shrewd, to be careful and thoughtful. We desire to be full of pity for those who are outside of you, who don't know you, but Lord, you know them. God, we ask your blessing on us as we begin to invest ourselves in today's message. Uh, Master, again, I'm calling out to you, just as we saw in the book of James, give us wisdom beyond our natural means. Help us to have understanding that really alters eternity, that makes us kingdom workers and, and kingdom warriors who are powerful for your gospel. God, I pray again that this wouldn't just be trivia we take in, but this would be something that bolsters our faith, that gives us confidence uh, in speaking to others about you. And Lord, that there might be those moments where we sow seed and where it takes root and flourishes. We love you, God. We give you this morning. It's in your most precious name we pray. Amen. Today we are going to be discussing the teleological argument for the existence of God. Yeah. Now everyone say teleological. Okay, you're probably never going to go to somebody and go, going, get ready, I'm going I'm to pounce on you with a teleological argument. It's generally not the way you're going to approach it. The teleological argument is an argument made from complexity. It's an argument that a person makes when they see the honeycomb that comes out of a beehive and they go, that looks designed. That does not look like something that occurs by chance. Or when you've tasted a strawberry and you go, I can't believe that that is the result of just purely natural forces. It seems like something like this was designed. Or when you look at the cosmos and study and understand the cosmos. The, the argument began with a man named William Paley. At least he's the one who popularized it. William Paley was a Christian. He was a proto-scientist known as a naturalist philosopher. Um, but he, he began discussing and, and kind of used this illustration to help people understand the teleological argument. Here's what he said. He said, imagine I'm walking along, I'm walking through a heath, and I trip on something, and I look down, and it's a stone. A stone does not look designed. For all I know, that might have been laying there forever. But let's imagine that I'm walking through this field, and I trip, and I look down, and there is a perfectly running gold pocket watch. I don't look at that and say, my goodness, look at how the elements have come together. Instead, as soon as I see a pocket watch, as soon as I see that intricacy and that design, I'm left thinking, this is a designed entity. If I see a watch like this, I know instantly that there is a watchmaker. And William Paley then expounded on this, and he said, look, if a watch is complex, if, if you've seen the intricate gears inside of a watch, if that is complex, how much more so our cosmos? Now, that meant something in 1802 when William Paley said it, but it means way more now in 2020. Do you know why? Science has advanced a little bit since 1802. We now know far more about the complexity of this life than we used to. And so the argument from design is more powerful now than it even was then. Teleological comes from the Greek word telos and logos, the logic of telos. Telos is the Greek word for outcome or end result. What the teleological argument is saying is, look at the end result. Look at the complexity here. Could this possibly have happened by chance? Or is it designed? Psalm chapter 19, 1 through 3, we see uh, David saying much the same thing as he worships the Lord. Here's what he says. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day they pour forth speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, no language where their voice is not heard. 
Look at the complexity of this universe. Does it not scream that there is a God? Well, let me give you two versions of the argument. Unless you're in a systematic debate, you're probably not going to trot it out, but it's helpful for you to know. The first version of the argument is what we call a probabilistic argument. Probabilistic means it's probably this way. Make sense? Probabilistic argument. Premise number one. Immensely complex structural functionalism. There's a mouthful. Immensely complex, meaning it's, it's very complex, but it's structural. It also bears a resemblance to something that's structured, and it's functional. It works. Immensely complex structural functionalism is generally not observed as having resulted from chance, that is, from random processes. The universe, that is, the cosmic order, is immensely complex and structurally functional. Nobody disagrees with that. I don't know of any atheist who doubts that for even a moment. Conclusion. Therefore, it is most probable that this universe is not the result of random processes. The next version of the argument I just want to trot out really quickly, bear with me, is the deductive argument. Deductive arguments are logical arguments where if the premises are true, the conclusion is guaranteed to be true. So in order to defeat a deductive argument, you have to defeat the premises. Premise number one, the complexity of this universe must be explained in terms of design, chance, or natural law. What are the three things that it can be explained in terms of? Design or natural law. Remember those three. Premise number two, it cannot be explained in terms of chance or natural law. Conclusion three, therefore, it can only, only be explained in terms of design. Now, that might not seem that powerful to you. Before our session's done today, this argument will be locked down in your brain probably as something exceedingly powerful. Let's discuss the anthropic principle. Yeah, uh, anthropos is the word for man. Anthropic principle means man-centered. So anthropology is the logic of man, right? Anthropos, or uh, an anthropic, is meaning man-centered. Here's the deal. There were scientists years back who developed something they called the anthropic principle. These were not Christians. These were just scientists who went, you know what? The more we look at this universe, it seems like it was made with man in mind. It seems almost intentional, like this whole thing seems to be conducive toward the existence of human beings. It almost seems like it was designed with humans in mind, almost as if. Now, this has only gotten better as the years have gone on. The, the popular version of this is what we call the Goldilocks principle. You remember the Goldilocks story, right? Goldilocks and the three bears. You know, the bears are out, she goes in, and she tries some porridge, too hot, porridge, too cold, but then she tries the third, and it's just right, just right. Same thing with the chair, too soft, too hard, just right. The bed, too soft, too hard, or too big, too small, just right. The Goldilocks principle says, as we look at this universe, the more we investigate it, the more we discover that we are on a razor's edge of precision, where if the universe went in any other direction, all of life would be impossible in this cosmos. And this knowledge, this understanding, is just increasing as the years go on. Last week, we discussed origins of the universe, and, and I, we touched in on, on, on Big Bang cosmology a little bit. Remember, Big Bang is not a mechanism. Big Bang is a, somebody said it, description. It's a description of what the universe would look like. So if a Big Bang happens, it is nothing, whoop, everything. That's all it is, is a description of nothing, everything. That being said, if the Big Bang occurs, we now know something really bizarre happened. 
in those first nanoseconds of the universe's existence, and by nanoseconds, I mean Planck time. Planck time is the time it takes light to travel 10 to the negative 33 centimeters. That's fast. That is such a small microcosm of a second that it is hard to even be able to conceive. In those first nanoseconds, the universe went from nothing to almost its present size. That is fast. But here's what happened. During those first nanoseconds, you'll remember we talked about this a little bit last week, there are no physical laws. There's no law of gravity. There's no mass of the proton. All it is is energy expanding, and then suddenly, boom, it all locks down into more than 40 physical constants, something's 46 physical constants that are perfectly aligned where they adjust anywhere and in any different direction, and the universe is unlivable. How did that happen? Let's discuss that. Beyond simply the universe and its patterns and precision, we also have the existence of a planet where life could possibly exist, and that is precise. We have a galaxy, a solar system where life could possibly exist. That is precise. We've got life itself, which is amazing. Back when William, William Paley constructed his argument, did they know about DNA? No, they thought the cell was a little gelatinous block. They had no idea what was going in there. They thought it was just like a little brick, you know, made out of jelly. Consider DNA. We have in our bodies, in every cell in our body, we have this instruction manual for the whole of the human frame. Now, if you were walking along a beach and you saw a shiny rock, you might pick it up and you might be like, cool, shiny rock. But what if that shiny rock had Windows 10 on it? Would you then go, this doesn't seem like it could happen by chance. We have discovered that our, our bodies are rife with DNA. It, it's information. It is a, it's a program that makes windows look simple by comparison. DNA, this little tiny strand that is, your cells are full of this stuff throughout your whole body, has the entire instruction manual for creating every part of your frame, every part of your body. It knows the difference between the material in your eyes and the material in your heart. It has the instruction manual for starting and stopping various protein constructions everywhere in your body. It's information. It has not just information, but it has antivirus software on it, basically corrective software that says, oh, this is broken, stop this DNA strand, we're done, and terminates itself. It's incredible. If you were to decide that you wanted to type all the information from your DNA strand out, I know you're all thinking, I'd love to do that. <laughs> it would take you, if you spent eight hours a day typing 60 words a minute, it would take you 50 years to type out the information that is in just one strand of your DNA. That's incredible. It looks like it's designed, one would think. The more we come to know ourselves, the more we come to know our cosmos, the more powerful the anthropic principle is, the more power it has over our understanding of this universe. But here's the deal. Have atheists been silent on this? No, of course not. They have to speak to this issue. So let's address, for the bulk of the rest of our time, I want to address the five major responses that non-theists have to all of this spectacular structural functionalism. Here we go. Non-theistic expectations. Richard Dawkins, who is the, uh, one of the foremost atheists in the world right now, has said this. He wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker that's a play on William Paley's uh, original 
watchmaker hypothesis. It was in the 1980s, and here's what he says in the book. Biology is the study of complex things that appear to have been designed for a purpose. Think about that for just a moment. It looks like they're designed for a purpose, but then he goes on ad nauseum to explain how it can't possibly be that they're designed for a purpose. Let's consider his premises, but first let's go through the five atheistic responses. Here we go. Response number one to the complexity of this universe. It's very improbable. There's, these are just randomistic, random mechanistic processes. We're just really, 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 really lucky. All right? So just very, very lucky. I mean, somebody's going to hit the lottery eventually, right? We're just lucky. Response number two. This universe really isn't all that exquisite. Maybe it's not as cool as we think it is. Response number three. The universe had to be this way. Overarching physical parameters mandate that the universe would have to fit this mold. Natural law mandates and determines that it must be this way. Response number four. Everything looks designed after it has transpired. Life would find a way to exist and perceive order in any paradigm it found itself in. Thus, we should not be surprised that our cosmos looks to be ordered in the way that it does. And response number five. Yes, this universe is fine-tuned for life, but maybe there's an infinite number of dysfunctional universes, and we're just the one that happened to work. It's the multiverse theory. Okay, so let's knock these out one at a time. Number one, we're just really, 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 really lucky. Let me ask you a question. What is luck? Chance. Generally, luck is described as chance. All right, now, let me, let me do a brief teaching on chance for you really quickly. If I take a coin and I flip it up here, and I catch it, turn it over, what are the chances that it's going to be heads? 50%. Incorrect. It's actually not. There is a certainty you could have. If, I, if we had enough information, if we knew the velocity of the flip, the power of the flip, the air pressure, everything else, if you had enough information, you could determine which it would land on. You would know for 100% it will be heads or it will be tails. Chance is a description of human ignorance. We don't know which it will be. And so that's what we're describing. I don't know how this is going to pan out. I don't know how this is going to work out. R.C. Sproul uh, wrote a book not too long ago before he passed. He said, chance cannot do anything because chance is not anything. If you say that this universe is the result of chance, you are saying that it is the result of nothing. It is the rabbit out of the hat, only there is no hat. There's no magician. It's magic. It is an appeal to magic. Uh, R.C. Sproul references in this book, he says, there's a scientist who said it this way, um, Chance is the soft pillow on which scientists lay their head at night. Because I'm basically saying, well, look, maybe it could happen just given enough opportunity. Now, I'm going to give you some numbers for comparison today. Um, so these numbers are good for you to write down. You remember scientific notation. Quick, quick recap, right? So you remember, there are some numbers that are so big, you can't really write them out. So if I say, uh, for instance, um, 10 to the 14th power. That is a one with 14 zeros behind it, okay? One, 14 zeros behind it. Number of cells in the human body. This is just for comparison purposes because we're going to deal with big numbers today. Number of cells in the human body, jot this down. 10 to the 14th power. If it's a baby, 10 to the 12th. Uh, some of the biggest people, 10 to the 16th, but 10 to the 14th power is kind of the average. 
Now, to give you an understanding of how exponentially huge this number gets, number of atoms in the entire cosmos. Not our solar system, not our planet, not our galaxy. Number of atoms estimated to be in the entire cosmos is 10 to the 80th power. Now, that number might seem small to you. That's not a small number. That's one with 80 zeros behind it. It's a huge number. But I just want you to see the difference between 10 to the 12th or 10 to the 14th and 10 to the 80th. 10 to the 80th is a lot of things. Got it? Let's talk luck. Imagine I go to play the lottery this week. Now, I don't play the lottery, but let's decide I'm, I'm, I'm going to play Mega Millions. This week, I'm going to buy one ticket. And I go out and I buy my one ticket. My odds of winning Mega Millions are one chance in 175 million-ish. If you play the lottery, that's why you call it the stupidity tax. You're, just, you're not going to win. But you think, ah, oh, somebody wins occasionally. Let's imagine that I play my one ticket. I spend the money on the ticket. I actually win. One chance and 175 million. People are all happy. Like, Yay, Ben, great job. I know you'd all be thrilled for me. Yay, we can build a new church or whatever. Good deal. And I'm all happy and celebrating, and it's ridiculous. I can't believe I won. And so on a lark, I say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out, and I'm going to buy another lottery ticket this week. Just one. And I go out and I purchase another lottery ticket and I win again. Now at this stage of the game, every intelligent person in this room goes, something's up. Ben is in with the Ohio Lottery Commission or something's going on. Maybe he's getting inside information from God, but there's no way somebody wins that twice back to back. What if I won a third week, a fourth week, a fifth week? At some stage of the game, no matter how much you believe in luck, you're going to stop and go, this is stupid. There's no way this can happen. The numbers we're looking at today are going to be, they're going to make this lottery winning and sequential lottery winning look like nothing. Okay. Imagine a big bang happens. We've got this nothing and then everything. Within those first nanoseconds, we have all sorts of physical constants, more than 40 physical constants that form up in those first nanoseconds. Why did they form up at the level they did? They're very precise. How precise? William Lane Craig says this. He says, imagine you've got this cosmos machine and they have dials and all the dials are tuned in, each dial having hundreds of millions of increments and they are perfectly tuned to the one. If you touch some of those dials, the universe is unlivable. If you breathe on a dial, the universe will implode. That is the precision we've got. Let's look at some of these uh, elemental forces. I want to consider the strong nuclear force first. Were the strong nuclear force increased by as much as 1%, the nuclear resonance levels in our cosmos would be so altered that nearly all carbon in the universe would be burned into oxygen. I've got a problem with that. I'm made of carbon. So are you. We're carbon-based life. Were that the case, no life would exist anywhere on our planet. An increase of just 2% would preclude the formation of protons out of quarks, meaning no atoms could exist in that, this universe. I've also got a problem with that. I'm also made up of atoms. If that amount were decreased by a mere 5%, the universe would be formed of nothing but hydrogen. Unlivable. Let's consider the gravitational force. If the gravitational force were slightly greater than its present levels, all stars would have been red dwarfs. Those were too cold to support life-bearing planets. If the gravity were slightly smaller, all of our universe's stars would have been blue giants, which don't last long enough for any life to function on said planets. 
And it's not just that these things are balanced in themselves, but they have to be perfectly balanced with one another. If they don't correspond to one another perfectly, the universe becomes unlivable. So for instance, the gravitational uh, force in proportion to electromagnetism. According to astrophysicist Paul Davies, a change in the gravitational force or electromagnetism, this is a fraction, by one part in 10 to the 40th power. That's a one over a one with 40 uh, zeros behind it. That's a fraction. If you were to change that by even that minuscule of an amount, it would have spelled disaster for stars like our sun. We would not have a central star. What about the distribution of mass and energy in the cosmos? If the mass and energy in our early universe were not distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the power of 10, to the power of 123, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. Now, this makes thinking atheists a little uncomfortable. So Frederick Hoyle, who is himself an atheist, said this. He said, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Well, is our universe lucky? Uh, Luck does not begin to cut it. No, that's irrational. That's absurd. What about the second contention? This universe really isn't all that exquisite. Maybe Maybe it's not that great. A good response at this stage of the game would be to say, well, what else would you call it? If it's not exquisite, what else would you call it? The ordering is so profound, so pervasive, that such a claim seems utterly absurd to anyone who has ever consulted the data. To suggest that our universe isn't extraordinary seems to be completely out of step with all of modern astrophysicists. The the expansion of our universe, consider this. Stephen Hawking has calculated that if the expansion rate of our universe, the spread, the the ratio at which we're moving apart, if it had been smaller by one part in 100,000 million million, the universe would have collapsed in a hot fireball. If it had been any faster, the universe would have dispersed too fast for any matter to form. Here's what Stephen Hawking said. And again, Stephen Hawking's not a Christian. He said, the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. It's almost as if we were in mind by whatever made this. What about the balance of physical constants? Again, let's revisit PCW Davies. He's calculated that a change in the gravitational force versus the weak force by even one part in 10 to the 100th power would have resulted in a completely life-prohibiting universe. Now, PCW Davies was an agnostic until he began studying these things. He changed before all was said and done. I don't know that he ever became a Christian, but he definitely believed in God. Here's what he said. Through my scientific work, I've come to believe more and more strongly that the physical universe has been put together with an ingenuity so astonishing, I cannot accept it as merely a brute fact. Claiming the universe isn't exquisite exquisite, puts anyone out of step with pretty much everyone who studies these matters. Sir Martin Rees is uh, a cosmologist and astronomer. He is uh, Britain's astronomer royal and has been since 1995. He said this, wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. It is all fine-tuned. But let's imagine we get a universe, and the universe is perfect, like our universe is. We still have issues. How do you get life? 
Life is a very complex feature. Again, people did not understand this years back. When William Paley put together his argument, he did not understand what it took to get a life form. Now, uh, people have actually run the numbers on what it takes to get a life form. Chandra Wickramatsinghe, Chandra Wickramatsinghe, you might be thinking, did I go to school with a Chandra Wickramatsinghe? It's not a name you hear too often. He's a Buddhist. He is a Buddhist and Frederick Hoyle, the atheist I, I mentioned previously. The two of these guys got together to run the numbers on a, obtaining the requisite enzymes necessary for even the simplest cell. Now, when I say requisite enzymes, I'm not saying a cell, a living cell. I'm saying the component parts, the brick and mortar parts for a single cell. They ran the numbers. They determined that the odds of getting those enzymes is on the order of 10 to the 40,000th power. One chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. Now consider the number of atoms in the universe is 10 to the 80th power. It's ridiculous. Now again, these guys are non-believers. They're non-Christian. Here's what they said. Since the number of atoms in the known universe is infinitesimally tiny by comparison, they argued that even in a whole universe filled with primordial soup, would not have a chance at putting together life. Not a chance. They said your odds are better of having a tornado go through a junkyard and put together a fully functional Boeing 747 than to actually see a single cell created by chance. And there's another problem with that. The stuff that is required to make a single cell is also caustic to all life, which means even if it forms, it's going to be destroyed by what formed it. These are serious problems. Abiogenesis is a problem, uh, problem, uh, is problem riddled, the idea of life emerging by chance. But it's not just that you have to have life by chance, you've also got to have some place for that life to develop. Can we consider planet Earth for a little while? Let's think about our planet. Now, if you're a sci-fi junkie and you like sci-fi stuff, you probably thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to be part of like a Star Trek universe and be planet hopping all over the cosmos? Once you know what it takes to generate life and have a life-permitting planet, you realize it is very unlikely that there is any other planet anywhere in the entire cosmos that could support life. Maybe, but unlikely. Let's look at what's required with planet Earth. How do you like that weather today? It's pretty nice, right? Aren't you glad it's not negative 413 degrees? Or 260 degrees? We have a natural satellite that is going around us, the moon. It's relatively in the same place we are in our cosmos. That is its, its temperature swing, 600 degrees. Our temperature is the most stable we've seen anywhere in the cosmos. About a 150 degree swing is what we've got on planet Earth. Enough that we can sustain life in the middle. Think about how, what would happen to all life on this planet if we went to 250 degrees or down to negative 413. And again, that's our natural satellite. So what's the deal there? How is it that we're able to maintain this really, really nice, comfortable position? It's almost like it was designed. Think of Earth's tilt and rotation. Um, Earth's tilt and rotation creates a very large inhabitable zone that we've not witnessed anywhere else in the cosmos. We've got predictable wind effects known as the Coriolis effect. And that distributes heat and cold fairly evenly over the bulk of our planet. In addition, our days and seasons are put together in such a way that our planet is able to maintain a temperature that is stable throughout most of the year. We evenly distribute all, with the wind patterns, we evenly distribute a lot of that heat over the whole surface of the Earth. With very little adjustment, we reach a position where the Earth's oceans would freeze, 
uh, if, if we were tilted out in any other direction, if the earth was just parallel to the sun instead of being on an, an axis that is tilted away so that we've got seasons, we would have a multiple hundred degree equator zone with freezing zones beyond it, and the wind patterns would be hurricane force so that we'd constantly be outside, if, if you imagine this, being outside and it's 250 degrees, well, I don't want to go outside today, but then a polar wind comes through that knocks it down to multiple hundreds below. Can you imagine life like that? No, you can't because life would not be sustained on this planet. In addition, we've got Earth's atmospheric composition. Uh, how many of you are happy that we've got a, an atmosphere filled with nitrogen? <laughs> so you're like, I don't know, am I? I, I is that good? <laughs> yes, it's very good. 78% of our atmosphere is composed of nitrogen, which, uh, which is a, a, a gas that does not mix easily with anything else. It's an inert gas. If we did not have a massively inert gas populating our atmosphere, you would have chemical reactions everywhere. Anybody want sulfuric acid in their lungs? Me either. Um, nitrogen does not mix with most things. It, it, it's stable the way it is. And so we have about 20% oxygen, about 78% nitrogen, and we have a little bit of uh, argon and a little bit of carbon dioxide in that mix as well. But the thing is, is it, you might go, you know, I like oxygen. I'm all in favor of that. Do you know if our oxygen was bumped up, it would destroy our DNA? If you, if you had much more oxygen than we've got right now, it would start breaking down your cells. Um, that would be bad. <laughs> Most of the uh, mammals on the planet would die. If oxygen were just maybe like 5%, 10% higher, do you know what would happen when we had a forest fire? There would be no way to stop it. It would literally burn off an entire continent. There'd be no way to control that fire. You couldn't possibly put it out. It looks like it's designed. What about Earth's water supply? That's kind of a big deal. You might not realize how much. Our oceans absorb tremendous amounts of heat energy from the sun, which would otherwise turn this planet into a massive desert. Our oceans also absorb greenhouse gases. Those gases, if they were allowed just free rain, would turn our planet into a planet like Venus. It would be all caustic. We would be dying. That's an understatement. All right. In addition, we've got these kind of water cycles, which clean both the water that is on our planet and clean the land. Do you realize that without rain cycles like we've got, that dust would just continually build up all over the continents? And we would have dust storms, the likes of which would destroy civilization. Again, something you don't often think of. Earth's oceanic currents and lunar tides. The ocean currents created by our planet are created by planetary rotation, by heat convection, by water cycles, and by our moon. Our moon, by the way, about 1 80th of Earth's size. We don't see many moons paired with planets, anything like it. But our moon performs incredible functions for this planet as a natural satellite. We think it keeps our poles lined up. That without the moon, probably our poles would be shifting very regularly and moving out of, out of uh, orbit so that continents would move to different places. That would be nuts. All right, we've also got, with this water cycle, we've got a constant filtration taking place across the whole planet. So the waters are being cleaned throughout the entire planet, and as that happens, that's, that's a pretty good thing. Uh, without that, our entire ocean would become one massive sludge pit that would do nothing but absorb heat and would turn this planet into a giant oven. Again, I like clean oceans, those are good. What about the composition of Earth's oceans? You might not have thought, hey, I'm glad we've got salt water on this planet, but you are glad we've got salt water on this planet. 
Since as long as we can determine, the oceans have been at about 3.5% salinity. That's how much salt they contain. If you bump it up to a 5% salinity, it would kill everything in the ocean. If you lowered that amount of salinity, all the plankton in the ocean would not be buoyant enough and would sink and would die. And when the plankton died, every single other thing in the ocean would die because plankton feed the entire life cycle throughout the ocean. Why is the ocean at 3.5% salinity? How did that happen? Why is its pH level where it is? Here's the deal. We should have, you guys remember the Dead Sea? Right? It's just water that dumps in and then it evaporates and this Dead Sea just gets more and more minerals in it. We still don't know to this day why our saline ratio has not just continued to skyrocket. Why it stays at 3.5. It's a mystery. Again, it's almost like it's designed. Uh, without the saline content, by the way, bacteria would also spread out of control through the world's oceans. And you don't want that either. Earth's crust composition and plate tectonics. You might not think plate tectonics are important. They're very important. Um, most scientists who study this stuff say once our plates stop shifting, the Earth is on a very small time scale till everything is gone and dead. What do the plate tectonics do? Well, first let's consider our crust for just a moment. Earth's crust thickness falls into a particular range conducive to life. Any thicker, and it would negatively impact the quantity of oxygen in our atmosphere. We wouldn't have the amount of oxygen we've got. A thinner crust would result in excessive volcanic activity, massive volcanic atmospheric pollution, and unstable plate tectonics. As it is, our crust allows for a very slow-rolling carbon release into our atmosphere. Too much carbon will kill everything on this planet. We've got just enough carbon coming out, and the ocean is, is absorbing just enough carbon that it doesn't destroy us all. We're lucky. Yeah. If plate tectonics stop, they say our ocean will, be, uh, will not maintain a uh, liquid form at any point in the future. So once plate tectonics stop, they think the oceans are all going to freeze up or go into gas. But it'll be done. Earth's size and position in our solar system. Our distance from the sun allows us to have moderated temperatures. If we were much further from the sun, our water would all boil. If we were much closer, uh, would freeze. If we were much closer, our water would boil. Um, if Earth were smaller, we could not hold our atmosphere. It would have just blown off. Right? It would be sucked away by, uh, by comets or anything else that passes the planet or by um, uh, solar flares. It would just knock our whole atmosphere off. If we were any larger, we would be a gas giant and we would have a, a planet that was hostile to life of any kind. Goldilocks. Just right. We've also got a defensive gravity shield. Um, aren't you glad that we don't have meteors the size of our moon plummeting into planet Earth every day? Do you know why that is? Our big brother Jupiter. Jupiter and the asteroid belt sucks up. Uh, it's basically this gravitational vacuum that's just sucking all sorts of space debris in so we don't get pummeled every day. Goldilocks. Just, it's a very nice way that happened to turn out. We've got numerous self-regulating heating and cooling systems on this planet. There's a, there's a geological theory called the Gaia Principle. It's in reference to an old idea of a Greek deity, the primordial deity of Earth Gaia. Right? Now, these are not Christians who composed this idea, but the, what they said is they said they looked at planet Earth and they went, it seems like Earth is smart, like it knows what to do in order to stabilize itself. It's almost like it's its own biological entity. And so they started calling it the Gaia principle, the Gaia spirit. Here's what they mean. If things start getting too hot on this planet, 
it begins evaporating. Uh, well, it's, first of all, it heats up the ocean. And as it heats up the ocean, the, the, uh, the polar ice caps melt. And when the polar ice caps melt, the ocean gets higher, which absorbs more heat, which makes it get cooler, which makes the polar ice caps form up in greater, um, greater more prominent formations, which warms up the planet, which causes them to melt. So we've got this cycle that's been going that is keeping everything stabilized. It's almost like it, it was designed with a program that kept things stable, almost as if. Consider our position in the Milky Way galaxy. I know you've probably been considering it all morning. <laughs> if you think of the Milky Way galaxy like a big octopus, you've probably seen like the, uh, the images of like the spiral galaxies like ours, where they've got kind of these big arms that stick out from the galaxy. So you've got this kind of hub that's just massive amounts of stars. You don't want to be there. That would annihilate life of all kinds. But then you've got these arms that go out that are filled with stars. We happen to be situated on the outskirts of one of those arms where, we're on, where there's a perimeter where they think maybe life could occur on the outside of the galaxy. And it just happens to be that that's where we are. But we're not in one of the arms because that would prevent life. Uh, if you were in one of the arms, we'd be pummeled with so much radiation, the Earth's magnetic poles could not repulse it. By the way, we've got magnetic poles that keep a lot of radiation and bad stuff from hitting the planet. That's convenient. All right, we are, we are in the Orion Spur. If we were inside of one of those arms, we would be obliterated by radiation. Um, our atmosphere would have been torn away by supernovas because the energy they kick out. We just happen to be way outside of there. And, and here's the deal. We can actually see stars. If we were in one of those arms, you would never be able to see anything outside of our atmosphere because there would be so much light all the time. So the fact that we know space exists is because of our position in the, uh, outside of one of those arms of the Milky Way galaxy. We've also got a stable central star. That's also pretty handy. Uh, there are a lot of volatile stars out there. There are only a few stars that we look at and think that could support life. Our sun happens to be one of those. But here's the deal. Even in all of those we've ever researched, ours is more stable than every other one we've ever seen. And we don't know why. It just happens to be. We've got life that ingests CO2 and expels oxygen. We've got life that ingests oxygen and expels CO2. The more you investigate, the longer this list gets. And I'm not exaggerating that. Go anywhere in the sciences and you see how life just forms up this elaborate web where we've got all of these features contributing to our existence. One of the pieces of ridicule that atheists often bring against Christians is going, you idiots think you're the center of the universe. Look, all we are is a big nothing and a piece of dust out in the middle of space. Doesn't look like it. Uh, beyond that, here's, here's something interesting. I didn't mention this in first service. The smallest unit at which matter can have existence is known as the Planck length, 10 to the negative 33 centimeters. The, the largest size that we can conceive of right now is the size of the cosmos. If we split the difference, guess where we end up? Right, what's well, right at our size. It is at the human, it's, it's like between three and, three and six feet. It's where humans are. We are right in the middle. Wow. All right, let's deal with some of these other problems. Some people say natural law mandates it. There must be physical features that force this universe to form up the way it is. Surely there's some law that is governing this, right? Wrong. That seemed like a good theory, but we've actually investigated that now. Scientists agree. All of these numbers could have formed up completely differently. We know that that is the case now. And so that has had to be jettisoned. But here's the deal. Even if it were true, imagine that you have this physical, these laws that are operating on physical things. Guess what those laws have to be? 
non-physical. Because in order for those laws to operate on physical matter and energy, they had to be there before the cosmos came into being. That's the only way it could force things into this parameter. It would literally have to be something supernatural. So if you want the laws, I guess you can have them. I'll call that God. But it's, it, it is something supernatural with, which forced the universe to do what it is supposed to be doing. All right. Um, by the way, if those laws exist, those also have to be explained. So you have a problem with that as well. All right. What about the, the uh, objection? Everything looks designed after it has transpired. Life would find a way. Have you seen Jurassic Park? It's my favorite Jeff Goldblum things, right? Uh, life would uh, find a way. Life finds a way. Jeff Goldblum's awesome. Um, but this is kind of an argument based on sort of what he said. So here's the, here's the way the argument goes. Okay, well, look, I mean, life seems elaborate and amazing, but you know what? Any situation, life's going to emerge. And as soon as it emerges, it looks around and it goes, how lucky am I to be here? I mean, look at how things have formed up to give me life. And so what they say is, yes, we're immensely complex carbon-based life, but couldn't there be silicon-based life? That's not scientific. If you think there's silicon-based life, what would that look like? And they say, I don't know. You have to use your imagination. That's not scientific. We have silicon on this planet. Why don't we have silicon-based life? If life finds a way, where is it? We've, we've examined planets in all different scenarios now. We've studied more than 300 planets. We don't think any of them could support or are supporting life. And that's 300. We've got a lot to go, but pretty sure they can't, and they don't. If we have the capacity for life in any setting, we should see variants of life on our planet. We don't. It's all carbon-based. We're all basically made of the same stuff. Okay, so explain what that life looks like. You know, if somebody wants to say, you know, you got a planet full of fire, we'll have magma men that emerge. How? Explain to me how. What does that look like? Explain to me in detail how we get magma men. Okay, our fifth objection, final objection. Yes, this universe is fine-tuned for life, but maybe, maybe there are an infinite number of dysfunctional universes and we're just one of them that worked. This is called the multiverse theory. Multiverse theory says this universe is amazing, but there are an infinite number of unstable universes that are out there, so we really shouldn't be amazed. We just happen to be in a functional one. Uh, what is being said here? They're acknowledging that we are special. We are exceedingly special, but rather than give glory to God, what they're doing is going, undetectable, unknowable universes exist, and we're not talking about galaxies, we're saying universes, entire universes, undetectable, unknowable universes we'll never be able to fathom or understand, they're just out there somewhere, and that's why we are as complex as we are. Rather than giving glory to God, these are individuals who rather crassly, in, in sort of an obscene response, would rather embrace the idea that we are a huge accident. By the way, the multiverse is very fun to argue with because it's full of all sorts of weird contradictions. Here's what multiverse theorists say. They say every conceivable universe must exist because there are an infinite number of them. So there's a universe where everything about what is happening now from the very beginning till now is the same except that my paper was here instead of here. Right? And that's, that's what multiverse theorists believe. Now, if you say to them, okay, so you're telling me every conceivable cosmos has to exist. Most of them, because most people who adhere to this adhere to it popularly, will say, yes, every possible universe. You say, you're, 
You're telling me that there's a universe that's made out of nothing but number two pencils. And they have to say, yes. I know it's all the rage in the science fiction world right now. Everybody wants to talk about multiverse and think about multiverse. It is not scientific. As soon as you label something undetectable and unknowable, you're saying not science. We cannot assess those things. We cannot know that those things are there. Here's one of my favorite responses to the multiverse theory. A former student of mine uh, was interacting with somebody. He's, he's now a teacher in his own right, teaches some apologetic stuff, but he was interacting with somebody who believed in multiverse theory, theory and he said, so you're telling me every conceivable outcome is out there? The guy says, yeah. He says, okay, so there is a universe where one God exists. The guy's like, yeah, I mean, it's probably a lot of them, yeah. Okay, but there's every kind of universe. Yeah, there's every kind of universe. So you're telling me there's a universe where the one God exists and that God decided that he would come and live among humans and then give his life for the sins of the humanity so that they could be saved and spend forever with him. And you feel the jaws of the trap closing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that world exists. How do you know we're not that world? Yeah, multiverse. There, there are a few more others that we could go into. We're not going to do that now, but uh, suffice to say, these are sort of the big ones on the world stage right now. Let's close out. The explanations offered by non-theists fail. They fail utterly. Uh, you know, I'm remembering there's some huge chunk of this. I'm, I think I missed an entire page out of this. Did, did a lot of this go by? No. Hmm. Oh, well. I'll just try it out one more. Cosmologist, cosmologist Donald Page calculated the odds of the 40 physical constants in our universe arriving just at the levels they arrive at perfectly, by chance. And it, just given, assume a Big Bang happened. Just the odds that those things form up at the levels they do, one chance and 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 124, or 10 billion to the 124th power. That doesn't account for life or anything else. That's just how obscene that idea is. So where does all this evidence get us? Some of you have listened to this, and you're like, oh, that's, that's cool. You know, maybe I, can, maybe I can take some of these numbers and go hit some of my friends over the head with them, and maybe they'll be compelled to believe. As I said at the beginning, um, I've talked people into corners with these issues over and over again in life, but that does not mean that people are, are going to convert. Um, most people will not acknowledge when they have gone wrong or where their arguments have failed. Remember, as Paul told us in Romans 1, that people suppress the truth by their wickedness. So what are we to do with this? The Lord doesn't do compulsion. The Lord will not give you so many and such powerful ideas that you will be able to bludgeon the hyper-intellectual into submission to God. If he did that, then he would really be taking free will away from the intellectual elites. And by contrast, he doesn't leave us without information such that People who are vastly ignorant have an advantage in coming to salvation. This is what this tells us. God gives us the opportunity to love him with all of our minds or reject him with as little of our minds as we'd like to commit to the project. So what do you, not, you and I do? We continue to sow seed. For some people, giving data and information is going to really help them to knock down the barriers that stand between them and God. And so we continue to sow seed. For those who have eyes to see, who have ears to hear, we marvel at our God. And if we're diligent, if we're diligent, we will occasionally encounter people who want to marvel at our God with us. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. It's a wonderful thing to behold creation. Listen to what Paul says to the church of Rome in Romans 
chapter 11, verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Master, your world is amazing. It is incredible. And God, I pray that for the rest of our days, we marvel at who you are and at what you've done. Lord, let us use these, uh, these ideas, even some of these equations, some of the math that's involved here to, to speak a word for you. Um, and God, I pray, if nothing else, that it bolsters our faith just to know that those answers are there. We love you, Lord. We praise you for loving us. It is in your name we pray. Amen.